And now I was to the point where I felt I had to get out of that situation. And with that thought, I was now losing my identity. Whether we like it or not, I think a lot of military and a lot of first responders kind of take on the identity of being what they do, whether it be police, fire, military. So I was in a position where I was losing my identity, or at least I perceived I was losing my identity. I was in a position where I was losing my financial stability. I had a mortgage, a car payment, I had a kid at North Carolina State University. And I likened it to being in a dark tunnel, and at this point I was unable to see the light at the end of the tunnel. I'm your host, Derek Vanderwalker, and I'm honored to be focusing on an eight-part series this month with the nonprofit Warriors at Ease, which brings the power of yoga and meditation to military communities around the world through training, advocacy, programs, and partnerships. Today's guest is Chris Davis, a level one and level two graduate of the program who spent over 25 years with the Fayetteville, North Carolina Police Department and served in a range of capacities before retiring as assistant chief of the force. Prior to law enforcement, Chris served over three years in Operation Desert Storm and Desert Shield and ultimately leaving the U.S. Army with the rank of first lieutenant. He's a certified yoga instructor and created Yoga 911 three years ago to help serve others through the incorporation of yoga and meditation practices in combination with his passion and expertise in resilience and operational performance. In this straightforward and honest conversation, Chris shares the challenges and stress of policing that many who wear the blue face every day, in addition to his own personal story and how yoga brought him back from the brink. Well, Chris Davis, welcome to the show and thanks for joining us. Glad to be here, Derek. Thanks for having me. So it's not often you hear the words former assistant police chief and yoga instructor in the same sentence. So I know you have a lot to offer in this conversation. So before we go there, tell us a little bit about your background and your connection to the military. I was in the ROTC program at the University of Dayton. I graduated from there in 1989 and was subsequently assigned to Fort Bragg, North Carolina, where I was only I was only in the military for three and a half years. I was a transportation lieutenant. Although I was in for a short period of time, I'd like to think I had a pretty exciting career in three and a half years. I got sent to Panama for the invasion of Panama with Noriega. Got to go to do a humanitarian mission in St. Croix for Hurricane Hugo and spent seven months in Saudi Arabia for the Operation Desert Shield and Desert Storm. So after the military, when did you move into the police force? Got out of the military and to be honest with you, I kind of was in limbo for a little while. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I had a criminal justice degree, but initially I didn't want to be a police officer. I didn't think they got paid enough to do what they do. And after being in it for 25 years, I still believe that. But no, I ended up getting hired by, after about six months of being in limbo, I got hired by the Fayetteville Police Department um, in 1992 and stayed with them through 2018. So I did 25 years of service. Wow. It's a big career. And somewhere along that way, you got into yoga. I did. In 2014 or so, we got a new police chief from the outside. For the 20 years that I'd been there prior, all our chiefs had been promoted internally. So when we did get a new chief internally, there were changes, but they were minimal. Everything pretty much stayed the same. He came in and made a lot of changes. And I didn't have a problem with change. And I don't think the majority of the department had a problem with change. It was how that change went about. It was kind of through threats and intimidation, which it really took its toll on me to the point where I actually put in for early retirement. I didn't know it at the time, but I knew I was going to lose some money with that decision. 
but I went ahead and did it anyways. I kind of likened it to a domestic violence situation. The organizational stress was so burdensome to me, I was willing to do almost anything to get out of that situation. Somewhere along the lines, I thought growing up in kind of a alpha male type world that when you experience organizational stress, it wasn't the same as like, say, for example, the stress of being involved in a shooting. Somewhere along the lines, I came to the conclusion it was two different things. And through my kind of personal experience and study, I realized it's actually the same. The body doesn't know or care where the stress is coming from. It just knows that it's under attack and responds accordingly. So let's pause there for a second. There was change within the higher up of the police force and it changed the culture and the organization. And on top of just the day-to-day stress that police officers have to deal with in the field, in the community, the way the organization was run just was another layer of stress for all the officers and those in the, in the force. Absolutely. And actually, I was fortunate. I was actually a lieutenant in charge of our training center at the time. So I was a little bit disconnected from the officers that were working patrol and investigations who were really taking some heat. So for better or worse, I was a little bit disconnected, but training was a big thing. You know, when a new police chief comes in, in this case, he wanted to do things his way. And so I did have quite a bit of contact with him and had several unpleasant meetings that left me feeling pretty hopeless, actually. Yeah, yeah. No, I get it. And I think when there's a disconnect with management, I think in any organization, when they don't understand what the ranks need, I think it's a very distressing feeling because everyone wants to support the chain of command. Everyone wants to support their bosses and their managers. And if that relationship isn't top down as well as bottom up, it puts a lot of stress on the ability for the group to execute what they need to do. You got into your yoga practice during this time of stress and change trying to adjust not so much to the stresses in the field or in the community, but in working through the organization. How did that stress, how did that discomfort in your role as a police officer move you towards exploring what yoga can do? I had a friend, she was one of my sergeants at the training center. She and I went to the same yoga studio and they had a yoga challenge, which was comprised of how many times can you go to a yoga class in a 30-day period? She challenged me to yeah. do that with her. Which is not easy. No, I reluctantly took up the challenge and she ended up beating me by a couple of classes, but I think I ended up going about 20 or 22 times in that 30-day period. And I always say, I didn't go into the challenge with the idea that yoga was going to save me, but somewhere along the lines and unbeknownst to me, what it did is it made the stress manageable. Instead of being down in the doldrums and a dark place, I was starting to get a little bit better. And it was just, you know, incremental steps, but it got me to the point where ultimately I rescinded my retirement. It's another long story, but I actually got promoted to a captain by this police chief. And then ultimately about 14 months later, he promoted me to assistant chief, which is still uh, a miracle. So the same police chief that was giving you the stress saw how you rebounded or responded from the, the change in management style, the culture, and recognized the talents and the abilities you have as a leader, as an officer in the force. And yoga was a big part, it sounds like, your ability to embrace that discomfort, embrace that challenge, and still rise to the occasion. Yeah. And it's really ironic because in a roundabout way, I think he appreciated my candor. With one of my meetings with that chief, I asked him, chief, what are the chances of me being promoted to captain before the list expires? He said, Chris, to be honest with you, I don't have a whole lot of confidence in your ability to lead at the next level. 
And I sat there for a second. And I said, Chief, why do you say that? Because I always considered myself a pretty good police officer. And he said, you're not engaged. And I, again, I thought for a second, I said, Chief, I, I can't disagree with you. I'm not engaged, but it's because of you. And said, why didn't you say anything before? And I said, well, to be honest with you, Chief, I didn't think you'd care. He sat back at his chair and he kind of changed his tone a little bit. I think he appreciated my, again, I was professional, wasn't discourteous or insubordinate or anything. I just basically, at this point, I didn't have anything to lose is kind of what I went in the meeting thinking. Yeah. You already were practicing non-attachment to this job, to this role. And you're like, all right, I'm just going to be totally honest because I don't care how you react. Yeah. If I'm going to go out, I'm going to go out on, on my terms. And ultimately, we talked for a few more minutes. And when I got up to leave, he said, Chris, if I promote you, you have to be prepared to go at 100 miles an hour. And I said, Chief, I think I'm up for the challenge. And whether he did it or not, I don't know. But of all the captain's jobs he gave me, I probably had the most difficult captain's job in the department, the most responsibility. So... Let me go back a little bit and connect the dots to yoga. So you were invited to do the 30-day challenge by another police officer? Yes. And was there something about their appreciation in yoga that you connected with? Or was it more just like, it's a 30-day challenge? Yeah, why not? I'll do it for the workout. I think a little bit of both. I did it for the challenge itself. And Kelly Berg was the name of the officer, and I always considered her to be very good at what she did. She did several jobs within the department, as, especially as an investigator, and did an outstanding job in whatever she did. So even though I outranked her, I still valued her opinion and valued the way she policed. So you hit 22 days of the 30-day challenge. What was the connection that you had that said, I got to come back and do this again? Again, I just think it was very subtle, but just took the edge off to the point where I could manage the stress. The stress affected me at work, but it also affected me at home. I had a wife and a younger son at the time, and it was causing some problems in our marriage. My wife thought that I wanted to be left alone because when I went home, I would sit there in my favorite chair, play words with friends. I like the mental stimulation, but I like being able to zone out on the game. So my wife thought I wanted to be left alone. So God bless her, she left me alone. But ultimately, we kind of drifted apart. Everything ended up working out great. We're still happily married after 30 years, but it created some issues and kind of ignored my son. Again, there was no ill will on either of our parts. It just kind of went that way. But it took me several years to kind of figure this out and why I think yoga helped me during that period. Are you familiar with the concept of chi or energy in the body? Absolutely. Kelsey Timmis, kind of my mentor, my teacher in the 200 and 300 hour class, she suggested or said, when I was in that dark period, I basically had stuck chi. I had no energy moving throughout my body. Everything was stagnated and creating some issues. Doing all that yoga in a 30-day period unstuck the energy or unstuck the chi where it started flowing through my body again, where I started to have energy physically and emotionally to deal with the stress that I was dealing with. So I think that's kind of how it helped me. So, and for those who are listening, chi is sort of the ancient Chinese word for what in yoga would be considered prana. It's the same life force and energy that moves through everything. And I can connect with the physical sense of having trauma in your body, whether you have an injury, chronic or acute. If you're mentally or emotionally stuck, that stuff is real. And I think when your chi is flowing and your prana is flowing and you're aligned with what you need to be doing, you're more open 
spiritually and existentially and just your ability to connect to other people. One of the things I appreciate for what you shared was when guys are not in a good spot, it does impact the loved ones around them and the fact that guys can shut down and can kind of push people away. And I believe a yoga practice is a great way to work through people's own challenges and then to be more open and available to other people. So when you started to feel and notice the unblocking of some of the stress and the tension you were holding in your body, how did your practice evolve? Where did it take you through and ultimately bring you to being a yoga teacher? At the same studio, I continued to go probably, I'd say three times a week on average. So I kept that going and I had this desire to continue to learn. And I thought the next best step was to take on the 200 hour training program. So just to clarify, you did your 200 hour teacher training with who? With Kelsey Timmis at the Guiding Wellness Institute in Fayetteville, North Carolina. So you did your 300 hour with the same group? I did. Of course, Warriors at Ease was part of that training. Actually did eye rest, integrative restoration. It was a guided meditation program that was developed at Walter Reed Hospital when the guys and girls started coming back from the Middle East, had physical or mental issues. And basically, it's a guided meditation that you help them do a body scan or a body sensing thing. It usually lasts anywhere from 30 to 40 minutes. It's pretty awesome stuff. And it's called iRest. Short for integrative restoration. Yep. Wow. I think there's just so much that some of these curated yoga techniques for certain communities first responders, the veterans, it's really cool to see how much they've leveraged in the research available for understanding stress and trauma in the body. So speaking of stress, I know you're very passionate about resilience, and I know you have a passion for improving resilience and operational performance through yoga. Could you speak to a little bit about what is resilience? How do you define resilience? The resilience part, I think for the longest time, I always had the concept of resilience is your ability to bounce back. But one of my friends slash mentors, his name is Richard Gorling, G-O-E-R-L-I-N-G. He runs a program called the Mindful Badge. He was kind of like the first cop that I knew of that was into mindfulness, probably started 10 years ago, maybe earlier than that. But he said, instead of bouncing back, why can't we bounce forward? Why do we have to go back because of a setback and the best we can do is to get back where we were? Why not bounce forward, get a little bit better than we were before, learn from our mistakes or learn from that experience and and bounce forward, which I thought was pretty cool. So I've kind of taken on that concept. And so to answer your question, I think resilience is your ability to deal with a setback and be able to learn from it and bounce forward better than you were before. So when you think about resilience as the ability not just to bounce back, but to bounce forward, how do you think of that physically, mentally, or spiritually as somebody who has experienced all that in life and also in a yoga practice? Physically, when I talk to first responders and military folks, one thing I stress is yoga is like anything else. You basically get what you put into it. If you do yoga once a month, twice a year, or whatever, it's not going to help with your resiliency the majority of the time. You have to exercise three or four times a week to see some benefits. You have to do yoga. I would say minimum. Yoga can be anything from some two to five minute breath work to an hour and a half Bikram session. So there's so many different options here, but you have to do it, I would say, a minimum of two to three times a week to see some benefits physically, mentally, 
and spiritually. So from a physical standpoint, if you do something twice a week, I think you're going to see some minimal, but you're going to see some benefits from a mental standpoint. I think like we talked about before, it may get that chi just moving a little, that energy moving just a little bit more to the point where you can start taking some incremental steps forward. Spiritually, I think you're just going to be in a better place, a little happier, which is going to affect how you deal with your family members, your coworkers, and the idea of military and first responders, the folks they deal with on a mission type basis. So what does operational performance through yoga mean to you? It means that, and one of my catchphrases is, if we can control our breath in here in a controlled environment, then ideally you're going to be able to do it out in the real world. And that, and by control, I mean, you're going to be able to control your thoughts. You're going to be able to slow your thoughts down. And one of my big things is I believe that yoga and mindfulness gives the soldier or the first responder one second. And if you think about it, to the average person, one second's not a lot. But in the policing and military field, one second is huge. It can make the difference between pulling the trigger and not pulling the trigger. It can make the difference between recognizing it's a cell phone and not a handgun. It can make the difference between saying something that you're going to regret saying later. It can make the difference between looking down at your computer in your car and rear-ending the car in front of you. And that same is applied to a soldier. It can make the difference between taking a shot that you shouldn't have taken. It can make the difference between recognizing a true threat versus not a threat. And it just improves overall performance. Sounds like it gives you a little bit more space to have some momentary judgment to really think through what's happening. And it's happening in a microsecond. But when you live in that kind of work, that brief second could be life and death for you or somebody else. You paraphrased it perfectly. In your conversations with those in the military and tactical athletes, first responders, how do you articulate why they should consider yoga and what they're missing and not having a practice? Well, one of the things is the suicide rate for military folks and first responders. What a lot of people don't realize is that uh, I can't give you the exact numbers, but I believe it's, there's a shirt that I have 23 a day. So I think they say basically 23 veterans or military people commit suicide each day. And first responders, again, I don't think a lot of people know, suicide is by far the number one killer of police officers. Before COVID hit, it was approximately 43 to 46% of all officer fatalities. The second one being felony assaults and the third one being vehicle involved deaths together weren't as much as suicides. You're saying over 40% of deaths for those police officers is from suicide. Yep. And the high year was 2019, there were 228. And again, it's one of those things, if you're a police officer for 30 years and you retire and you commit suicide two years later, you probably committed suicide because of the job, but it may not because of the job. So there's those gray area type suicides that uh, I know aren't being reported. It's stunning. It's stunning to hear that. And I think police officers, firemen and women, first responders, tactical athletes out there in the field doing their stuff. I think a lot of people don't understand and can empathize how challenging that job is. And I know there's a lot going on in the political sphere, different conversations, but at its most human basic level, they're out there and they are not only living moment to moment in very intense, stressful situations, which by the way, chronic stress will just absolutely destroy your body over time. And then they also have to 
deal with the perceptions and nonverbal communication they receive and the verbal communication out there. And that's a pretty big bag to carry. And so it's really heartbreaking to hear that statistic. And, and so obviously we don't know exactly what's going through their minds and why they make these decisions, but what would you guess is the disconnect or the, the challenge, the struggle they have? And I got to imagine that there is a path to something like yoga that can help hopefully support that struggle. But what do you think it is a lot of these fallen officers suffer from or deal with in that experience? Well, I can speculate on a lot of officers, but I can give you my example. When we talked about earlier about my organizational stress issue that I dealt with, I actually contemplated suicide. And the reason I did that was I'd been on the department for 20 years. I always considered myself a very good police officer. And now I was to the point where I felt I had to get out of that situation. And with that thought, I was now losing my kind of my identity, whether we like it or not. I think a lot of military and a lot of first responders kind of take on the identity of being what they do, whether it be police, fire, military. So now I'm at a point where I'm losing my identity. I'm losing my, I was a lieutenant. So I was making pretty decent money for North Carolina, but rarely can you go from one department as a lieutenant to another department as a lieutenant and make the same amount of money. Typically, you have to start all over again. So I was in a position where I was losing my identity, or at least I perceived I was losing my identity. I was in a position where I was losing my financial stability. Like many folks out there, I had a a mortgage, uh, car payment. I had a kid at North Carolina State University, so I had bills that most people have. And what else was I going to do? I was pretty much in that dark And I likened it to being in a dark tunnel. And at this point, I was unable to see the light at the end of the tunnel. So that's kind of what I thought. And and I always talk to folks, too, about, you know, it's kind of a a common misbelief that people that commit suicide are selfish. And a little part of me can still see that because I guess if you get down to it, it kind of is. But I also know now that people that are in that position aren't being selfish. They just want the pain to stop. And that may be the only way they know for the pain to stop. Pulling the ripcord just to get out of that place that they're in. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's so devastating, so overwhelming, so that overwhelming sense of hopelessness, that's just, that's just where they're at. And ultimately, that's why, regardless of whether you ask why. So I, I don't think it's so important as to why. I mean, I think we can all speculate as far as that goes. It could be financial. It could be a lot of relationship type issues. You just get to that point where you're hopeless or have a sense of hopelessness and you see that as the only way to stop the pain. Well, first of all, thank you for sharing that. I think a lot of folks have those moments in life where they just feel like there's no way out. And you're right. The why doesn't matter as much as the fact that they're in an emotional or existential or spiritual place that they don't see the way out. They don't see the path forward. They don't feel like they're being recognized or seen and appreciated by the community that they're serving and that they're a part of. And that's a really difficult place to be in. And I I know from my experience, when I've had moments of my challenges and my struggles, the ability to turn off the news, to turn off the smartphone and do a little yoga, like literally just whether it's 10 minutes of breathing or it's 90 minutes in a hot Bikram and to disconnect and lose a little bit of 
whatever that external struggle you're trying to navigate through, to let that go. And I got to tell you that philosophical aspects about yoga is something that I think is just a whole another chasm of being able to put things in perspective and to know that there's been this philosophy and this practice for thousands of years that helps give you some comfort, I think, in knowing that people have come to this practice, people have come to this idea that we are all connected, we all should have a better sense of knowing and seeing one another and supporting one another. We're connected with the environment and the planet around us. It doesn't happen after 22 or 30-day yoga challenge. It happens over time, learning how to have a consistent habit and some sort of routine that's grounding, that helps you physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually, and that you can share with others is, I think, a really great unexpected form of healing and self-care and giving back. And I literally feel like I'm sort of just in the baby pool of understanding this stuff. And it's a whole deep ocean of knowledge, wisdom, character, generosity, and understanding. And I feel like it's what makes this stuff so fascinating to be a part of. And like you, it, it's fun to keep learning this stuff and then sharing this stuff. So I totally get that. And I, I think more first responders and people who serve in those ways should really, really get into a yoga practice. Yeah. So especially when you're dealing with like SWAT guys or super type A personality guys, if you can talk about improving their performance, it's going to kind of pique their interest. And typically they're going to at least give it a try. Now, whether they continue to do it, that's going to be up to them. But just the idea that you can make it so that it does actually improve your performance. So Chris, you've had a lot of experience working with men in the field as a police officer in service for our country in the Middle East. You've seen all kinds of guys of all kinds of stripes in Fayetteville and in your life. What do you think are some of the hangups that guys have about considering yoga or the barriers for getting into a practice? I think probably the biggest barrier is that they believe it's primarily for women. And I think if they realize that when yoga was started thousands of years ago, and probably very much to this day in the Eastern part of the world, yoga is still male dominated. It's not until it came to the West that it started to become a female dominated type industry. So I think in all fairness to them, I think there's some truth to that, but I think it's one of those things where I've never, I probably taught hundreds and hundreds of guys over the last four years when it comes to yoga. And I've never had anybody come up to me after class and say, Chris, that class sucked inevitably they either thank me for the class or they tell me that's not what I thought yoga was. So I think it's one of those things where once you get them on the mat, they quickly realize, and again, it, it depends on the teacher too and the style of yoga that they're in. If they go to a reputable studio and kind of pick a class that they think they might be interested in, more than likely they're going to have a good to great experience. Do you find that guys who go into yoga class are um, worried about how they look or how they'll do or whether or not they're able to do this stuff? I think that definitely plays a part in it. I think I always hear I'm not flexible. I mean, I actually tell folks after I get to know them a little bit, I've actually had both my hips replaced. So there's some yoga poses that I shouldn't do and that I can't do. So, I mean, if I can do it with two total hip replacements, I know that the average person can a good teacher is going to give them options. So if they can't get into pigeon pose 
in the traditional position, they may be able to do it with their leg up against the wall with their ankle crossed their leg. So a good teacher is going to give them options. Or having a block in the right place or a bolster. By the way, when did you have your hips replaced? I think 2008 and 2012. Did you feel like yoga actually helped you better connect with your hips? It helped me as more aware of the actual feelings or sensations I was having in the hip area as I was doing the exercise, but also so much of what yoga does deals with stability. And even today, and I just started teaching at a new place last week and just something as simply as sitting with your legs crossed or easy seat. I take that for granted now. And there's guys that my age, very similar, kind of big, big guys or whatever. Chris, how do you sit like that? Of course, I put them up on a block so they can experience it just a little bit. But again, it's one of those things where if you do it over time, you're going to see the benefits and the results. Yeah. Yeah. Your body's going to figure it out. It's going to learn how to be in that position and things are going to open up. So when did you take the Warriors at Ease training? How did you hear about it? And what'd you get from the program? It was part of my 300-hour training. It was kind of an elective. If I wanted to go ahead and and take the class, it was considered credit towards my 300 hours. And to me, it was a no-brainer. It was something I was very interested in. It was dealing with the military community. And going in, I really didn't know what to expect. I was a little apprehensive as far as dealing with folks that may have some PTSD issues, traumatic brain injuries, may have lost a limb or two. So I was a little bit skeptical about my ability to be a good teacher for that population. So going through the class between Christy and Kelsey, they basically do a great job of teaching you step-by-step of how to deal with each situation. Ab reactions, I think, is one thing that they talk about where basically very rarely have I experienced where during a yoga practice, in this case, say a soldier has a reaction to something that you're doing. It could be something they're in their final resting pose and all of a sudden they start to cry. How do you deal with that as a teacher? And what Warriors at Ease did, again, it built up your confidence to deal with that special population, but it also taught you from a physical standpoint how to use props, chairs, bolsters to let the, in this case, the soldier experience yoga as if they were fully physically able or mentally able to do so. So again, it kind of brought them back to the level that they were before they were injured, which I would think would be priceless to them. I can appreciate that. I think any teacher who finds out somebody's got an injury in the room is somewhat conscientious of their injury. And even if they haven't lost a limb or they haven't suffered some of the challenges that people have experienced on the front lines. So to have former military members, people who really have had a lot of challenges, injuries, PTSD, you want to support them and take care of them, but it's complex. And I appreciate Warriors at Ease has spent a lot of time curating and developing these techniques to give yoga teachers and other types of therapists who've taken their training the ability to understand and empathize and support that person's practice wherever they are at that time. Like that's no small feat. And I know that people who do teach yoga really care about what they do and the ability to work with that particular community and support them, I think is pretty amazing. It's pretty amazing that they've created these techniques and they're doing this training. Well, and little things that they do too, they try to use the phrase culturally sensitive. Basically, you're sensitive to the the military community, for example, and it applies to first responders too. Based on what they've been through, ideally you want to have them be able to face the door during the class because like all hypervigilant people, they want to be able to see the door. They want to be able to see where they can go if they need to get out type thing, little things like that. 
You may be sensitive to if you play music, the type of music that you play. If they were over in the Middle East and you have something that has Middle Eastern tones to it, that may kind of spark something negative. Trigger some kind of stress. It, exactly. Little things like one of my favorite phrases is, I'm talking about a student lying on their back. I tell them, think about on the inhale that you may be kind of like rising above your mat a little bit. And on the exhale that you're kind of sinking, becoming heavy, sinking into your mat. But that may not necessarily be a good phrase or a good cue for a soldier that's been through some trauma. So little things that kind of the intricacies of dealing with that special population makes it makes it priceless. And has that training helped you work with the general population in teaching yoga? Absolutely. It just makes me a lot more aware of everybody has challenges in life. So obviously as a teacher meeting somebody for the first or second time, I'm not going to know everything that they're dealing with, but it just makes me a lot more, I guess, open or maybe perceptive of things that they may be dealing with based on their actions, what they say or don't say in some cases, how they act on the mat. So I'd like to think I'm a little more observant and it's basically giving me another tool in my toolbox. How has your yoga practice changed or shaped your definition of masculinity? I I think it comes down to the ability to be vulnerable. I think so many people, including me, and I actually wrote a little paper on this, so many guys struggle with being open or being vulnerable to, in this case, learning something new, doing something that may not be seen as masculine. It's almost like trauma release yoga when your legs you kind of burn your psoas throughout the practice and you do some trauma release. We put your feet together, your knees are together. And then ultimately your legs will start to shake. I've never been through that particular practice, but I know from someone who has a psoas injury that I'm dealing with all kinds of corrections in the body that comes across as a lot of shaking. Research uh, trauma release yoga. It's pretty amazing stuff. Basically, it's one of those things where when I take students through it, it's one of those things where their legs start to shake and it's like, oh my God, what's happening? And I kind of talk them through it and try to make them feel at ease where if your legs start to shake, let it go. It actually takes more strength to let your legs go and stop trying to control it. That's the problem with we as a species, we try to control everything and ultimately it kills us. There's a book called Why Zebras Don't Have Ulcers. And the theory behind that is if a zebra gets chased by a lion, what's it do? It'll go into the woods and just start shaking. It basically gets all that shit out. So okay, I'm good to go now. All the stress and anxiety is gone. Let's go have a nice day. Where people, we don't do that. We let it build and build and build. And then you got Besser Vanderkolk's book, The Body Keeps Score. Ultimately, that's going to come out. In my case, it may be spasms in my lower back. It may be a migraine headache. Everybody's body deals with stress differently. So we have to do a better job as a population of getting rid of our stress on a daily basis as opposed to letting it build up and build up to the point where we start to see some negative. Yeah. And just turning off the screens and getting on a yoga mat is probably one of the simplest ways to do it. So as we look to close, what advice would you have for men who haven't gotten into yoga or having challenges maintaining a practice? Well, what I would say is give it a shot, do a little research, find out what type of yoga you think that you would be interested in. Obviously, if you've never taken a yoga class, you're probably not going to know the ins and the outs, but just do a little research on what type of uh, class you think you'd be interested in. Go visit the studio, check it out, talk to the people there. And once you've decided on a studio, most 
good studios have like teacher bios. See if anybody resonates with you as far as their bio goes. Take their class. Ultimately, you'll probably find one or two teachers that you really like, and you'll probably go to them the majority of the time. But I urge you to kind of try out different styles of yoga, whether it be power yoga, whether it be yin yoga, whether it be restorative type yoga. I encourage you to do it for, I would say, at a minimum for 30 days. I recently read some research that said it takes 66 days to develop a habit. So 30 days at a minimum, but I would encourage you to give it at least two months of going to a yoga class two to three times a week to see where you stand. Kind of keep a journal, nothing formal, but just write down some things that you got out of that class that day and then go back 30 days after you've done it and see the comments you made. And I think you'd be surprised at the comments that you made and how you feel and kind of see your growth over that period of time. Yeah, that's a great point. You really have to give it some time. It's not just, hey, going through a couple classes. But if you do it a couple times a week or even a couple times a month for the people who are really kind of slower, over a f- couple of months, definitely a year, you're going to feel very different in your body. And pretty soon your body's going to crave that movement, that practice, and you're going to start building on that and doing more than you did before in a way that feels comfortable and safe and natural. And it's a great feeling. Well, Chris, this has been awesome. I appreciate this on many levels. First, I want to thank you for your service to our country, your service to the community of Fayetteville, your service in bringing yoga to a broader group of people, including men, and your sharing at this time on the podcast. It's been really awesome connecting me and talking with you. So thank you again. Well, Derek, I appreciate you having me on the show. And if you need me to help out at any time in the future, I would be glad to be on again. I appreciate it. That's awesome, man. All right, be well and have a great day. You know, some character themes have popped up along the way that I've witnessed in interviewing these guys. Their wisdom, their resiliency, their openness, their vulnerability. As Teddy Roosevelt might say, they are in the arena. And no one epitomized this as much as Chris Davis. He was my very first warrior that I interviewed when I started this last fall. Chris, thank you again for sharing your story and your gutsy, humble resolve. Our next episode highlights Dennis Kerr. After going through the Warriors at Ease teacher training program, Dennis now teaches trauma-informed yoga and Tai Chi to veterans currently incarcerated in the Sheriff's Department in Colorado. This is another great conversation. They're all great conversations, but we get into the breath and the chi and some other interesting things that's helped Dennis along the way. 